Please stand for the reading of the gospel. This is a portion of the Sermon on the Mount Jesus is speaking. Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Thank you. Uh, Eye trouble. Today's message is all about vision, what we see and what we don't see. Spiritual eye trouble is a chronic part of the human condition. I'm going to be preaching each weekend for the rest of September, and we'll be looking at some of the best-known stories in the Old Testament. Today, it's Samson and Delilah. The next two weeks, we'll talk about David and Goliath and David and Bathsheba. Samson and Delilah's story is an Old Testament soap opera. Today, we're going to relate that Old Testament story with scripture from the New Testament and then discuss how this applies to our lives in 21st century America. So that's three main points, the Old Testament lesson, the New Testament connection, and then the lesson for us. Here's a little historical background to the story of Samson and Delilah. The Israelites have settled in the Promised Land after being led by Moses out of Egypt. Of course, others already occupied that land, and leaders are raised up from the Israelites uh, who lead them in battle against these other peoples. Samson is a leader for the Israelites, and his awesome and divinely given strength is a big asset in the job. In the time of Samson, the Israelites are struggling with a group called the Philistines. Samson is the Israelite champion who kills the Philistines by the thousands. His physical strength is so magnificent. He can tear an attacking lion to pieces with his bare hands. Although he's a great warrior, he's a poor excuse for a man. A womanizer, he has a thing for Philistine women. As a young man, he badgers his parents into arranging a marriage to a Philistine woman. That doesn't go well. Then we're told he's hanging out with a Philistine prostitute. After a while, he takes up with Delilah. When we read their story, we wonder what the attraction is. Delilah must be the worst girlfriend in history. Why does he put up with her? Annoying and whiny, she'll betray him for money. He plays her teasing and lying 
She continues to nag and complain. So visualize Samson, powerfully built with legendary strength. His hair, which has never been cut, is groomed into seven giant braids. But Delilah's tongue is stronger than Samson. She wears him down. Finally, Samson tells her his hair is the secret of his strength. Now, this isn't quite true. Uh, Every time Samson displays a supernatural strength, the scripture tells us that the Lord is what empowers him. His strength is not his own then, but God's. Samson has been set apart from birth for a Nazarite vow, which entails avoiding three things, wine, contact with the dead, and the cutting of hair. By the time he's hanging around with Delilah, the only vow he hasn't broken is having a haircut. Once that happens, the spirit doesn't come on him with supernatural power, and so he's taken prisoner. As you hear his story, don't you wonder what's going on in Samson's mind? He is the king of poor choices, constantly chasing after the wrong women, making enemies, even among his own people, by the way. We wonder why he cannot see that he's orchestrating his own destruction. Samson wrecks vengeance on those who do him wrong. Of course, he feels like he has a right to, has no trouble seeing the misdeeds of others. What he cannot see is where his own choices are leading him. Samson has eye trouble. He cannot see himself clearly. He cannot see his own mistakes. When Delilah betrays him, the Philistines gouge out his eyes. His inner and spiritual blindness becomes literal humiliated and incapacitated. Samson is shamed by his captors. But after a while, we're told that his hair begins to grow back. There's a glimmer of hope in that. The Philistines use him as entertainment in a temple celebration to their pagan god. A humiliated Samson prays then to the one true god. These are his words. O Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me. Only this once, O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. He prays to God for vengeance on his enemies. It's not a very noble prayer. It's really all about Samson and his faulty vision, but he does acknowledge that the Lord is the source of his strength. One last time, the Lord empowers him. Samson undermines the pagan temple structure by pulling down the main pillars. The collapse kills everyone, including Samson. Most of us know people in denial, like Samson. They make terrible choices and their lives are a mess. But they never seem to understand that their own choices and mistakes have brought them to an awful place. They always see themselves as victims, even though they can clearly see the mistakes that others make. Guess what? 
we all have the same eye trouble. We clearly see what others do wrong. It's no mystery to us when the bad choices that people make bring about their own misery. But we fail to see our own faults so clearly. Jesus talks about this in his Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is a kind of kickoff to Jesus' public ministry, and it's his first long recorded sermon. In it, Jesus teaches a crowd of people. The scripture says he preached from the top of a mountain. The long discourse that Jesus shares has many themes which will be repeated throughout his ministry. Matthew 5.1 tells us that a large crowd surround Jesus as he comes to the top of the mount, and then he sits down to teach them. So we imagine Jesus at the top of the slope and the people gathered at his feet. His view then was of the people with the backdrop of the Sea of Galilee behind them. Here's how Matthew 7 begins. Judge not that you be not judged. And then Jesus expands on that. He says, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. That's pretty blunt. Blunt enough we want to squirm a bit, even 2,000 years later. But then Jesus takes the crowd from squirming to smiling with the next bit. He says, why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that's in your own eye? The word translated as log here means a piece of wood big enough to be a beam that holds up the roof of a house. So imagine a huge viga. It's in your eye. You're blinded by it. But your eye trouble is such that all you can see is that tiny speck in the eye of another. It's ludicrous. This kind of exaggeration is called hyperbole. Jesus exaggerates to make his point, And he does so in a way that's so absurd it's funny. He's being ridiculous so we can see how ridiculous we are. This kind of preposterous overstatement passed as humor in the ancient world. Such a witticism may have been a real thigh slapper in the first century. So with this absurd example, Jesus reels in the squirming crowd with a smile so they can grasp his point. Then he asks another question. Or how can you say to your brother... Let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye. This is all pretty accusatory. First, Jesus had you noticing the speck in the eye of the other person, the brother. Now you're speaking to the guy with the speck, fussing at him. You've gone from noticing to speaking. The speck, of course, represents sin. The other person's sin is a speck, a tiny bit of sawdust. But you're making a big deal about it when there's a great log in your own eye. Jesus is providing a diagnosis for our problem. 
Here's the shorthand version. Sin exists. It's a problem for all humankind. What makes matters worse is we have trouble seeing our own sin, while we have no problem honing in on the sin of others. Makes us judgmental, which makes matters worse. We focus on the sin of others, putting them down. We think ourselves better, but we most certainly are not. So we have diagnosis. Now we need a prescription to treat it. Jesus gives us that too. He says, you hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Now the description hypocrite is for those who see only the specks, the sins of others. Our first job is to deal with our own massive sin. Only once we become introspective, examining our lives and our sin, do we repent and seek forgiveness. Only after we see what sin is in our own lives and we turn from it can we come to a place of humility and Christian love. Then and only then can we help others to understand what sin is and how to deal with it. Even then, we must be very cautious. It's easy to misjudge because we all suffer from this eye trouble, seeing through a filter of self-love, anger, and envy. These blind us. This is the pitfall we're warned against. The next thing I'm going to say is important. Notice what Jesus says here. He does not forbid us from going to another and pointing out problems, sin, immoral behavior. In fact, there's an assumption. We will go to others with an understanding of what sin is. Jesus gives us the clear vision of how to lovingly remove the speck from the eye of someone else. We do it with humility and love knowing that we are probably bigger sinners ourselves and we better deal with that first. Our ideas about sin and forgiveness and mercy are based on scripture. It's in God's holy word that we learn about faith and moral law. We are all called to know the word so we know how to live our lives and repent when we do wrong. The gospel of Jesus Christ provides the standard for us to view sin and discern justly. Take, for example, the parable of the Good Samaritan. In it, Jesus trains us how to judge according to the gospel. He asks us to discern which character in the parable acts with mercy. We must be able to apply gospel truths in truth. There's an obvious pitfall here. It's a pitfall that's common in Jesus' day too, and so he warns against it. Pridefulness, self-righteousness. We know forgiveness is not earned, and so we rely on the grace of God. We come on our knees before the cross. Paul states it clearly in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. 
Have you heard the phrase, hate the sin and love the sinner? It comes from the writings of Augustine, a great early Christian theologian. Here's what Augustine says on the topic. Concerning those things which are known to God but unknown to us, we judge our neighbors at our peril. Of these the Lord says, judge not, that you may not be judged. But concerning things which are open and public evils, we may and must judge and rebuke, but still with charity and love, hating not the man, but the sin. Isn't that a great quote? Uh, Hate the sin and love the sinner comes from Augustine. That's a simple fact to carry away today. Now, if you troll the internet, you may find this phrase attributed to Gandhi, but Augustine said it first, 14 centuries before. As we grow in understanding, we see sin more clearly in ourselves, and we should be helping others to grow in this way too, understanding the scriptures and coming to know that the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross is for our sin. We cannot know the motives, intentions, or faith condition of others. But open evil must be called exactly that. This is the traditional teaching of all Christians. We learn this in the life and death of Jesus. Mercy and forgiveness are what he brings. Sin is the reason this is necessary. But in society today, this good news can be difficult to share. We live in a culture that denies there's any ultimate standard of right and wrong. The mere mention that sin exists creates a backlash as a result. Those who do not believe in Jesus are often willing to quote two words from scripture right back at you, judge not. It's an indignant cry that no one has the right to judge their behavior as being right or wrong. Some will even go so far as to claim Jesus never judged people, but taught we're not to judge. That is not true. It is a perversion of the gospel lesson we're talking about today to even say such a thing. Now, occasionally part of the problem has to do with definitions. And we can apply a couple of definitions of the verb judge in this case. Let's talk about that. Uh, Here we see two very different definitions of judge. Uh, The one on the left, the first definition, is what we're taught to do as Christians. Jesus wants us to know right from wrong and to use that knowledge to guide our lives and our walk in faith. We receive plenty of instruction in Scripture so that we are equipped to evaluate according to the standard of the Lord, not according to our own personal opinions. This shows us what sin is so we can turn from it. So let's be very clear about this. We are to discern right from wrong. This is how we know we sin. This is how we know we need repentance and forgiveness. The teaching of Jesus in Scripture is clear. On the right, definition two is about condemning a person. Judging someone's worth is God's prerogative, not ours. 
Remember, hate the sin and love the sinner. That means we discern according to the first definition, but we do not condemn as in the second definition. We're all sinners. We can all be redeemed by God through faith in Jesus. Judge not. The Sermon on the Mount is a list of do's and don'ts for those who would follow him. Jesus makes clear that some things are wrong and other things are right. We do have a responsibility to make evaluations according to the word of God in order to help our brothers and sisters with the problem of sin, provided we first addressed our own. Jesus expects you to be able to see clearly. There are evaluations to be made within ourselves and of what we see in the world. Jesus didn't say, judge not, just leaving it at that. He said, judge not, followed by a clarification of what type of judgments to make, when to make them, and how to make them. The key here is to understand what kind of judging we are to do and not do. We must differentiate between right and wrong, good and evil. We discern, but we do not condemn. This is what often gets Christians into hot water in our increasingly diverse culture. When a Christian labels something as wrong or sinful, they're often pounced on as being judgmental and out of step with Jesus. Very often, the accusation is the result of a culture that no longer understands that Jesus wants us to discern right from wrong. Sometimes even Christians get caught up in this anything goes, all paths are equal culture and start thinking that we are not to evaluate and discern according to God's standard, but this is most certainly not the case. A condemning, fault-finding, hypocritical spirit is what Jesus is counseling against. He saw it in his own day. People so quick to see the sins of others, yet having eyes that give them problems when they look at their own lives. The same eye trouble exists today. The cautions and guidance of Scripture are there to help us as we go through our days so that we can see clearly. Let's pray. Almighty God, loving Father, our blindness and unworthiness clouds our connection with you and with our neighbors. Grant that we may understand what we ought to do and how we should conduct ourselves in community with others. By your Spirit, help us to see what is right and to be eager in doing your will. Draw us to you and fill our minds with your wisdom. We ask this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, Amen.